Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric. I, I work here at the Institute. Uh, I'm pleased to convene this panel on uh, the situation in Xinjiang today and human rights uh, in China with, uh, I would say, four of our leading experts um, here in the United States on that particular subject. The fact that we're doing this on May 4th was actually largely because of the logistics of getting uh, two of our speakers here. And I am very grateful to both Ryan and to Sarah for traveling from far away to be with us here today. Um, but May 4 is also an appropriate date to discuss the situation in Xinjiang and the buildup of the PRC police state there. It was, in fact, 99 years ago that Chinese patriots poured into the streets of Beijing and other Chinese cities to protest imperialism and unequal economic and political relations in Asia and demanded, among other things, that China embrace modern science and democracy. As we know, the best and most noble hopes of the May 4th movement, as it came to be known, later took an emphatically more radical turn. It subsequently came to be hijacked by the Chinese Communist Party which established the People's Republic of China in 1949. Almost as soon as it was created, the PRC laid claim to the borders of the old Manchu Empire, including not just China proper, but also many historically non-Chinese lands. In 1949, communist forces invaded East Turkestan, and then in 1950, Tibet. And ever since, PRC has gone to extraordinary lengths to make these part of China. Today, Tibet, as we know, is a staging ground uh, for PRC's uh, pressing of unfounded territorial claims against India. Meanwhile, uh, the Xinjiang Autonomous Uyghur region has for decades bristled under the erratic and harsh rule of the Communist Party. It has become the launching pad as well for the Belt and Road Initiative, or at least a primary launching pad for that a strategic and geoeconomic gambit with the goal, core goal, I would argue, of making Asia a safe place for PRC's continued monopoly of power over China. In Xinjiang itself, the PRC has built up the world's most advanced police state. Cutting-edge surveillance, population control technologies, and large-scale Chinese force deployments have made Xinjiang the most heavily garrisoned part of the entire country. Five to 10% of the indigenous Uyghur population has been uh, incarcerated or forced into camps for re-education. Meanwhile, the PRC's efforts to suppress or eliminate Uyghur culture and Islamic religious practice have also uh, intensified. Beijing justifies its police state in Xinjiang by citing security concerns over ethnic splitism and foreign Islamist ideology as well as long-held fears that foreign powers like the United States will seek to insinuate itself into the PRC empire by using these cleavages. Despite criticism of the Communist Party policy from Chinese themselves, the party has gone to extraordinary lengths to stifle dissent internally and to control what China and the world hears about Xinjiang. We're here today to discuss what we know about the situation in Xinjiang how it is affecting the Uyghurs, and how it is, in fact, uh, in fact, affecting China itself at a time when Xi Jinping has consolidated more power into his own person than any other Chinese leader since Mao Zedong, and PRC is attempting to transform itself into a global power. 
We have four, as I said, stellar speakers today, um, all of whom have written uh, great books and reports on the situation in Xinjiang and uh, about religious and human rights in China. Our first speaker is James Millward, who's a professor of history at Georgetown University and the author of Eurasian Crossroads, A History of Xinjiang. Any English reader will probably find that book first uh, when they undertake to learn something about Xinjiang. Next, we'll have Ryan Toome, who's come up to us from uh, the National Humanities Center, um, but he's also based at the Loyola University of New Orleans. And I have to say, he has written uh, a really remarkable work of international or global history called The Sacred Routes of Uyghur History, which is a must read for anybody with an interest in Central Asian or inner Asian affairs. Next, we'll have Sarah Cook, who, uh, like I said, I'm very grateful that you came down. She's doing the work of two people today. Um, <laughs> Sarah is a senior research analyst for East Asia at Freedom House and the author of a really an exceptional report that came out relatively recently called The Battle for China's Spirit, Religious Revival, Repression, and Resistance under Xi Jinping. And finally, we'll have Louisa Grevy, who uh, is uh, an independent consultant at the moment, um, but for many years served as the vice president of the National Endowment for Democracy. And many of China's patriots today owe an awful lot to Louise's work over the years at NED for the support and the leadership that she and others at NED have provided on this important issue. So with that, thank you. I'd like to turn things over to Jim to kick things off. Thanks. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. All right, I'll get right into it. Anyway, that's an inside joke. From ancient times, Xinjiang has been part of the Chinese landscape. That's how a lot of history, his, Chinese histories of the region would, would begin. Um, I'm not beginning that way, don't worry. Uh, I don't have enough time for all that, and that's not my point. <clears throat> I want to begin with, though, uh, how the issue of Xinjiang uh, has been sort of reframed. Um, right now. We have, uh, you know, obviously, the mass detentions that we'll be talking about today. Um, we have attacks on, sort of, on Islam in, in general, you know, rising Islamophobia. Um, we have moves to limit the education in Uyghur language, to sort of limit the use of Uyghur language in Xinjiang, uh, and, and many aspects of Uyghur culture uh, more, more broadly. And one thing that comes out of this, particularly the most recent sort of news, and particularly the, the re-education camps, uh, is that you know the the situation in Xinjiang, um, it's not really about it's not about terrorism anymore, if it ever was, right? Um, it's you cannot justify what is going on now by pointing to the relatively small, albeit you know horrific. Uh, violent attacks, terrorist attacks uh, in 2014. Uh, even the riots in 2009, um, it's hard to see how, you know, after almost 10 years, we suddenly get a response to that that looks like, that looks like this. You cannot justify locking up nearly 900,000 people, or for that matter, um, even 90,000 people, uh, as a realistic policy response to these sorts of threats. Um, so we really have to ask, what is this? About and particularly this more recent, you know, ramping up to a whole new level of policies targeting uh, Uyghurs of oppression, really, of Uyghurs uh, in the People's Republic of China. Um, and I'm going to argue today that there's new thinking about history, about culture, 
and about Chineseness in general on the part of academics and policymakers and sort of theoreticians um, in Xinjiang, but also in Beijing and elsewhere. And that this is what underlies PRC um, policies, uh, not just in Xinjiang, um, but sort of more generally domestically in China and even, uh, even abroad. What links new thinking sort of domestically and new, or new thinking about the domestic situation that is vis-a-vis Han and minorities or minority nationalities uh, on the one hand uh, and China's international thinking on the other is that uh, the, the common thread is uh, new ways of thinking about us and them, new ways of about thinking about otherness or alterity is the fancy you know, sort of academic term like this. Um, and these new ways of thinking about the Chinese us and the various thems, these new ways are fueled by a couple of new uh, or revived historiographical tropes, uh, revived ideas about history um, that have had much more currency in China uh, in recent years. Uh, so in other words, I'm going to say that sort of ideas about the past are actually underpinning these policy shifts um, in the present and justifying them uh, in the minds of policymakers and of the leaders who implement these kinds of policies. So the, the first of these historiographical tropes, I think, that's now sort of stalking again um, is the idea of, of Tian Sha, all under heaven, that there was a tributary system that organized interstate relations in Asia in the past, um, and that, that system uh, revolved around uh, China in the center uh, and at the sort of high point of kind of a spoken hub uh, system. You're probably all familiar with this idea. Um, it was made sort of the centerpiece by Howard French in his very, very good book on this kind of subject, on this subject. Um, now, this is a, the Tin Shide is a broader conversation for, for another event, another time. Um, but I'll just note in passing here that um, the idea that, well, that this sort of Tiansha idea that will restore China's greatness along a kind of tributary model from the past, um, this is a sort of dog-whistled message uh, that underlies the Belt and Road thinking, which is another thing we're all talking about quite a lot right now. Um, it's not part of the public face of Belt and Road, but it's part of how the Belt and Road idea is, is perceived and felt, I think, domestically um, in China. Um, and that, ex in, that explains why China's security assurances uh, and investment and trade and so on, these deals are all made in a bilateral fashion rather than multilateral alliances. It's China with other parties, you know, the spoken hub kind of thing. All right. The second of these revived historiographical ideas is actually closely related to that sort of Tianxian notion. Um, and that is the idea of, of Sinification or Sinicization, as it's sometimes called, Hanhua uh, in Chinese. Um, and this is the idea that, um, and it also comes from kind of the same era of historiography of China and the kind of the Fairbankian school um, back in the sort of 60s and, and 70s. Of course, there were Chinese versions of this uh, as well that have been around for a long time. But this notion of sinicization is that um, peripheral peoples in the Chinese world, sort of non-Han minority peoples, foreigners, barbarians, all kinds of others, um, were through time naturally drawn to the greater Chinese culture, sort of you know, brought in by a kind of magical, moral, cultural gravity. Um, and 
As they came in, they spontaneously uh, accommodated to, assimilated to Chinese culture. You know, Lai Hua, they came in to, to, this, to this Chinese culture. They came in to be converted, Lai Hua. Right? There's various plays in these words that are used. Um, now, this idea is, this underlines something you hear quite a lot about also here in Washington and elsewhere, this idea that, um, and this is related to the Tianxia idea, that there's this Confucian peace, right? That Asia uh, in the past was sort of managed through these peaceful ways, uh, the ways of the prince, not the ways of the hegemon, right? The idea that China never invaded anywhere else, including Xinjiang, but these places just kind of naturally fell into the orbit. Right? Um, all these ideas are there, and they're actually, um, I think, normalized and even unconsciously absorbed by uh, even American diplomats. For example, um, former ambassador to, to China, Gary Locke, repeated this idea that China has never invaded anywhere. Right? So this is a historical notion which, you know, it's been coming at us since the days of Chiang Kai-shek. Um, and it, it kind of filters in over time. It's not true, right? And I could give you, we could lecture about that. but. All right, so dispute over whether this notion of sinicization was real or not, right? You know, whether that's really what happened in the past and how these other peoples came to be part of China, how Xinjiang or Tibet and so on came to be part of China. Um, there was actually an oddly uh, intense and public debate over precisely that question in the Chinese press a few years ago, in academic journals, but also you know, in, the, in the press of uh, in, in, in Shanghai papers um, and others. Western and some Chinese scholars who said, no, no, Han Hua, uh, excuse me, sinicization wasn't really a thing, they were critiqued quite harshly um, in the press. Um, and meanwhile, theorists, uh, party theorists, policy theorists, particularly those working on the idea of the nationalities or the um, ethnicities system in China, uh, they brought that out, the, the sinicization idea out, and said, well, no, this is the way things worked in the past. And we've abandoned, that is, China has abandoned that approach. And as a result, we're having problems now in Xinjiang uh, and Tibet because we've you know, abandoned the traditional Chinese way of dealing with, of, with diversity. So in particular, uh, theorists who were working on the so-called uh, second generation nationalities theory, or second generation, so minzu is a Chinese word that's sometimes translated as nationality, sometimes translated as ethnicity. It's for it's of peoples, right? Um, those who are working on the second generation were bringing up this idea of assimilation, of sinicization, uh, as a principle that really should be underlying China's approach to nationalities, and marking a, a noted shift from the first generation approach to diversity in China. So what was this first generation approach? That's the system that it had some roots in, in the Qing dynasty, which treated certain different peoples, non-Chinese peoples, on a par with Chinese peoples for some purposes. Uh, but most obviously and structurally, it resembled the Soviet system, um, whereby the state would identify a set of, uh, of nationality peoples. Um, and channel cultural resources and some political resources to them, often giving them a, a territorial identity, either you know, an oblast or even a republic. right? And that general version of the system was adopted ultimately in China from the 1950s. 
and it resulted in the identification of the 56 nationalities or 56 minority groups, 55 plus the Han. It resulted in the creation of, uh, of, of territorial units uh, called autonomous. Of course, you know, we, we, we raise the scare quotes whenever we say autonomous like this. But in, you know, on paper, autonomous counties, uh, even the autonomous regions, such as Xinjiang, um, Tibet, and so on. Um, so those, that first generation way of dealing with diversity uh, in China, uh, I would argue is quite sort of liberal uh, on the surface, liberal on paper. Um, now, many caveats have to go in about that when we're talking about how it was actually carried out. And of course, there was a lot of oppression and violence and so on, uh, particularly during the Cultural Revolution. Um, but in terms of how it was actually set up and the goals and ideals, uh, which were trying to sort of, uh, defend and bolster the cultural identity of all of these different peoples, um, you know, the, these were coming out in the 50s and 60s. This is the time of Jim Crow in the United States, right? So the comparison at that time is actually quite, quite stark. Um, now, there's been a move then to move away from that first generation, to move away from that, from that approach. And the argument is that, since, that the fall of the Soviet Union shows that allowing this independent identity, even only cultural, and not so much political, identity of different peoples within a single state is dangerous. And it's often been argued uh, in China that the Soviet Union fell apart uh, along these national fault lines that were, in fact, uh, 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 created by and bolstered by the state. And this is seen as a big mistake for China to be continuing that, continuing that policy. Now, extirpating this whole nationality system, though, politically in China, would be very, very tricky because it's interwoven at all levels of society. As I said, there are territorial units and political uh, units that are sort of built on that. Your ID card has that identification on that. So that is probably some time um, in the future if that actually happens at all. But actually implementing policies that run against that, such as undermining what had been bilingual education in Uyghur and Tibetan um, in addition to Chinese, uh, or various policies that target aspects of um, Islam and see them as, as improper. You know, the fasting, for example, wearing a veil, wearing a beard, all these kinds of cultural attacks um, on, on Islam and on Uyghur culture. Uh, all of that falls into this broader pattern, I think, which we've seen for the last 10 or 15 years at least, of, uh, of assimilation, assimilationist goals underlying the policies of the PRC with regard to its minorities in general, and in particular to those in areas it deems unstable, uh, such as Xinjiang uh, and Tibet. So then assimilation. I think it's fair to say is now a goal of Chinese, of Chinese policies. Um, and it's believed achievable by Chinese thinkers and leaders for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, is this belief that in the past, Sinicization really was a historical reality, and that it had been, it's been abandoned by mistake because of Soviet influence. Second, I think, is a general belief um, in China's political culture and philosophical culture in the power of of moral educational uh, indoctrination. Uh, that ritual performance of loyalty actually can imbue 
loyalty, or at least stability, and create obedient subjects. This comes out of the Confucian tradition. Um, we see it in Maoist political study, um, Maoist rituals. Um, it comes out of many family and sort of child-rearing practices um, as well. And we see it in China um, you know, all along in the continued use of you know, political study sessions in, in workplaces, which, of course, where you go in and you sit there and you read the latest people's daily editorial uh, or a speech by a leader, and everyone knows it's, it's just kind of political blah, 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 right? But you have to sit there and go through the motions. And it's this belief in going through the motions of a kind and, and you know, literally reading and discussing political the political line, the belief that that works, I think, underpins this new move towards mass detentions in these re-education camps. Um, so while it astounds a lot of us that anyone could realistically think that locking up hundreds of thousands of people in re-education camps and in, in things that look like concentration camps um, based simply on their ethnicity or even on their religion. It astounds us it's just that anyone would think this could be a good idea, right? That it would do anything other than turn an entire ethnic group against the state for a generation at least. Um, but I think the belief that sinicization was a historical reality and the idea that this kind of indoctrination does in fact work um, is one of the reasons for broader political support for Chen Chenguo's policies uh, uh, in Xinjiang. Um, and some of the incremental policies that have led up to them. So really, it's an attempt to find a final solution to the Uyghur problem justified with a spurious historical notion. Thank you. Um, Ryan. Great. Um, <clears throat> well, thank you all for coming, and thank you for having me. Um, this is obviously an important issue that <clears throat> affects millions and millions of people. Um, and what I want to talk about is the, uh, I'll be referring to the phenomenon under discussion as the re-education camps. But uh, before I do, I want to just pause for a minute to talk about what that means. Um, uh, as, as Jim gestured to, uh, we're talking about 5 to 10% of, of the Uyghur population who are um, targeted for these re-education camps. Uh, based largely on their ethnicity. That comes out to somewhere between half a million and a, a million people. There's, uh, as from the best numbers we have, um, and, and there's also an, an unknown number of Kazakhs and possibly some uh, Dungans or Hui, uh, Chinese-speaking Muslims, um, in, the, in, in the camps. There, um, there are some indications that in some places there are quotas for the number of people who have to be put into the camps, and that, in fact, some police officials are having trouble meeting those quotas. And it's becoming more and more difficult to find ways to select which members of your village population, for example, go to the camps, uh, which may go some way to explaining some of the strange reasons that people have been given, um, quitting smoking, uh, praying with your legs too, uh, far apart, which is seen as an indication of uh, Salafist uh, sympathies, um, receiving phone calls, whether you answer them or not, from people who are on a blacklist, uh, having communication with people outside of China, or even expressing interest in leaving China, or encouraging your children to uh, seek some sort of employment that's outside of, outside of China. 
So it's getting, it seems to be getting difficult to, um, to find reasons for, for putting people into these camps. And the effects are enormous, not just on the people who go there, but on the people who are left behind. Those of us who specialize in the study of Xinjiang or, or of, of Uyghurs, um, we all know people who are in the camps right now. And you cannot find an Uyghur family in Xinjiang that doesn't have somebody in the camps, often many people, often a dozen people that they can name from their family who are in the camps. Um, and there are indications that orphanages are under great stress right now because of the number of children who um, are, uh, are without parents because of the, their parents going to the camps. OK, uh, so with all that grounding, attempt to ground this in real human experience, I, I want to talk about uh, a similar topic to what Jim talked about, which is the question of why is this tactic being employed? But whereas Jim talked about it on a, almost a national uh, uh, level, I want to go down to the provincial. Well, Xinjiang's an autonomous region, not a province, but to the, to the region level and think about what officials there might have in mind and then offer a few hypotheses on whether those uh, intentions will, uh, will be met with any, any, uh, any success. Of course, intent is very difficult uh, to get at um, with any state. Um, states are always multi-layered. It is particularly difficult in the case of Xinjiang because we have very little idea of who's making what kinds of decisions and how they trickle down um, uh, to, 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 the ground, to the ground level. But it's getting easier to make some inferences because policy in Xinjiang, uh, security policy in particular, has become much more uniform over the last two years. Four years ago, you would have looked at the kinds of policies we're talking about. You would have seen wildly different things from one county to the next, which suggested that local officials were improvising to meet some sort of vague targets set by the center. Now you see a lot of similarity, even in the language of announcements and things like that, from one county to another that suggest a much tighter central um, control of policy from, from Urumqi. So what do we see? Um, I'm going to discuss four possible motivations for these camps, three of which, the first three of which I think are uh, almost certainly in play, and the fourth one um, we all hope is not in play. Um, and then, and then a, a little bit about the prospects for each one. The first one is what Jim already talked about, and is the explicit goal of the state in these camps, and then that is to change people's minds. Um, they are called now, after, after going through a whole bunch of different names mm. for these camps, the, the state seems to have settled on uh, transformation through education schools, um, which right there in the name seems to be a declaration of what, what the intent is. I, I, I think I'll abbreviate my remarks on this because of uh, Jim's excellent comments. Um, but I do want to say that um, you know, my conclusion is that a lot of officials, maybe not all of them, truly believe that this is possible. And we can see it not just in the camps, but in the kinds of policies that started to roll out in 2013, 2014, even before, that are, that are clearly aimed at internal thought processes or external habits that are seen to be expressions of beliefs and ideologies. So for example, you have mass pledge signings. Um, mass oath takings, uh, control uh, for forbidding certain names for for, for children, uh, forced dance 
mass dance performances uh, with the idea that um, since uh, uh, textual literalist forms of Islam often um, proscribe dance, um, and those are the kinds of uh, Islamic expressions the Chinese state doesn't like, well, if we get them dancing, then that will somehow separate them from these forms of Islam we, we don't like. So there's a vast, vast array of policies that were already in place, and we're picking up speed um, 2012, 13, 14. That's before the current um, uh, uh, top leader in, in Xinjiang, uh, Chen Chuanguo, got there. Um, so I think I think this is this is something that a lot of officials believe. But there's there's another one I want to talk about, which is um, disciplinary. These camps have barbed wire around them for a reason. You could bring the people to the school. The people could attend the schools during the day and go home at night. Um, but there's barbed wire. There are guard towers, um, and there is uh, for for most of the people in the camps, there's no way to communicate with their with their family. So it's clear that this is being used as punishment. And we have several statements on, on the record by officials of officials using them for punishment. The, one of the more tragic cases is a, a young man uh, in the town, near the town of Yarkhan who was going, there are day, day trans, trans, uh, education schools as well. He was, he was required to go to these day schools and was told if he didn't memorize a particular um, a slogan in Chinese by the next day that he would be sent by way of punishment to the the full re-education camp. Um, he sadly responded by committing suicide that evening. Um, and there are many other uh, uh, versions of, uh, of uh, many other instances of this being used as punishment. And, and this, I will say, is quite effective. It has changed Uyghur's behavior. One thing we can see from the outside is that those of us who have um, uh, communications on the internet, I'm actually not one of them, with um, Uyghurs inside China have seen our contacts go dark generally in uh, around September and October of last year. So if your Uyghur friend dumped you on Weixin, it's not you. Um, it's the policies and the punishments that they're, uh, that they're, that they're facing. A third uh, motive, I think, and this one I think falls very much in line with what Chen Chuanguo is interested in, is disruption. You know, there's a very easy way, if you're, if you're interested in the short term, of stopping resistance to the Chinese state among a certain ethnic group, which is to, um, if you can identify those members of the ethnic group who are likely to resist and physically restrain them from acting in any way, you will achieve a what appears from the outside to be a stable security situation, at least for a short time. Some of the evidence for this um, is in places around Xinjiang where it's coming out that uh, whole classes of people are being sent to the camps. Um, based on their demographic profile. For example, uh, a county in the Ely Valley where any young Uyghur man between a certain age, something in the 20s and 30s, um, was sent to the camps on the claim that they are by nature at that age um, rebellious and um, uh, prone to extremism. So this fits well with the goals of of uh, what we can infer are the goals of Chen Chuanguo. He did, you know, in his time um, governing Tibet, he famously oversaw no incidents of mass public uh, protest. And I think the amount of praise that he received for that and the, um, uh, uh, his inclusion in, in the Politburo after that um, can, I think, safely, we can safely guess that he's interested in a similar outcome in Xinjiang. And having a 5 to 10% of the population judged by whatever clunky means to be um, resistant to the Chinese state behind barbed wire for a few years 
is, is probably effective in a temporary way. The fourth and most frightening uh, intent um, is one that I uh, hope is unlikely, but, but think we need to keep in mind, and a lot of people do have it on the, in the back of their mind, is the, the possibility that there's an intent to eliminate, um, uh, to, to cleanse people through mass murder. Um, uh, there are, uh, by, along ethnic lines or religious lines, or maybe, maybe a sort of ideological purification. And we've seen some frightening language from officials on the ground um, that suggests that, that some people may be leaning in this direction. And I, I want to say, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is, um, well, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily an intent at all, but I, I do think we need to look out for it. Intentions can change you know, over time. Um, and we see them, we've already seen them change in the re-education camps, which had smaller versions in 2013, 2014, 15. Um, uh, so I think the opinions we've seen, for example, an official who said, um, we can't pull out all the weeds one by one. We have to spray chemicals on everything. Or the recent AFP story that uh, talked about uh, work groups that go to Uyghurs' houses, house by house, um, talking about eradicating tumors. There is some frightening language there that makes you worry about what kinds of people may end up in charge of some of these camps where there are no checks on their power and there is no um, legal system enforced, and people in these camps, of course, aren't charged with any, with any crime. Um, okay, Jim mentioned a uh, common response outside of China to attempts to change people's minds, which is that, well, this is just going to make people angrier. And I would suspect that that will be true for the Uyghurs in the camps as, uh, uh, as well, and that is backed up historically. You know, Uyghurs went through the Cultural Revolution, went through the anti-rightist campaign, the anti-religion campaign, and they came out in the 80s with a strong sense of resistance to the Chinese state and a strong commitment to the society that they had lived in before the arrival of Communist Party, Party rule. So there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope for changing people's minds through these kinds of um, uh, coercion. Um, however, and I, and I also want to state uh, very briefly here about Uyghur opinion. Um, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Xinjiang, especially between 2004 and 2014, and my sense is that the Uyghur uh, opinion can be characterized this way. The vast majority of Uyghurs in Xinjiang view Chinese rule as illegitimate. And within that set, you get a range of people who have a kind of resigned pragmatism. And from there, you go all the way up to a um, anger and a sense of um, the impossibility of carrying on a, a human life uh, to such an extreme that I, I encounter a lot of uh, especially young men who, who express suicidal thoughts. Um, this life, I can't live my life, so why, um, so, so why bother? So there's, a, there's an in, intense amount of anger and, and displeasure among the Uyghurs. All right, uh, I'll, I want to close by bringing in one last element, which undermines this very even easy response that we can have that, well, you can't change people's minds by these kinds of activities. I want to point out that there is one demographic among the Uyghurs who is immune to going to the re-education centers, and that is children. 
They don't go to the re-education centers. They go to a much more effective form of ideological training, which we, of course, also have in this country, which is elementary school. And in those schools, there has been a, a dramatic change over the last few years, moving away from teaching in the Uyghur language to teaching in, uh, in Chinese, all subjects, um, a, which is a, a breaking of the promise of the Chinese constitution to preserve minority languages. Um, I think one of, in this, in this realm, the disciplinary role of the camps and the education and the uh, uh, changing minds uh, role interlock. You have Uyghurs throughout Xinjiang now who are scared of their children because they're afraid that their children will report them at school and that they will end up in the re-education camps. And you have these house-to-house -house visits looking at what books you have and asking family members what kinds of things you say. What this does, or what I think it may do, this is, I, I, I should say, somewhat speculative here, is it makes it very difficult for parents to do what they usually do, which is to counteract distasteful ideologies that their children pick up in school. Um, parents are now silenced at home. The home is now a public space that is open to the party. And they're afraid of going to the uh, camps and having to abandon their children altogether. So I think in the happy world in which these camps are dissolved, maybe in a couple or three or four years, I don't know, it, they're still expanding. So it doesn't look like there's much intent to dissolve them yet. I expect we'll end up with two groups of large groups of, uh, of worldview, pe people with different worldviews. One is the older generations who have been through the camps who have a great deal of anger. And a younger generation, which is much more effectively um, indoctrinated, uh, the question for me that I'll be watching for is, well, how do these two groups um, uh, interact, and, and, and what kind of uh, landscape does that create? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sarah. Uh, thanks. Um, so I'll be basing my comments on the report that, um, that Eric mentioned um, that we published last year called The Battle for China's Spirit. Um, and what it looked at was religious revival, repression, and resistance um, uh, under Xi Jinping across eight major faiths, including Islam, Islam looking at both Uyghurs and Hui Muslims. Now, our research focused on the period of November 2012 to November 2016, but I'll incorporate some updates. Um, but I think some of what was happening there and in other parts of China at the time also helps inform why and how what we're seeing today happening in Xinjiang is occurring. Um, the full report is actually 140 pages long, and you can find it online. There's an abridged version out there on the table, um, and there's about a 20-page chapter on, on, on Islam specifically. So I'm going to try to touch on three aspects of today's topic. Um, one, how have conditions for religious freedom in Xinjiang evolved under Xi Jinping, as well as for Islam in China generally, and what forms of backlash were evident at least during the time of our research? Um, two, how does the situation in Xinjiang intersect with broader religious persecution in China? Um, and three, what do these dynamics pretend for the future? Um, so what did we find in Xinjiang regarding Islam generally? Um, well, first, we noted signs of Islamic revival and growth, which came up, again, across most of the faiths that we were looking at. Um, Hui Muslim communities have constructed thousands of new mosques in recent years. And you see an, an, a situation where Uyghurs you know, began adopting um, certain forms or more robust forms of religious practice, in part as an effort to assert an independent identity from the Chinese Han majority, um, or because certain other avenues of cultural identity were shut off. Uh, second, um, the bifurcated approach of Chinese officials to these two different, uh, different Muslim populations was stark. 
Um, if you look at Hui Muslims, they are in a different part of China for the most part, uh, and they have much greater leeway than Uyghurs to practice core elements of the Islamic faith, like praying five times a day, fasting during Ramadan, going on the Hajj pilgrimage, or donning a headscarf. Um, as has been mentioned, Uyghurs who engage uh, in these kinds of acts increasingly face uh, job dismissals, fines, and even imprisonment. Um, and so from that perspective, we designate Uyghur Muslims as facing very high levels of religious persecution, while Kwe Muslims face low levels. And I think that gives a sense of some of the complexities when you're looking at these policy areas in China. Uh, but third, despite these differences, we did find that both Hui and Uyghur Muslims have experienced intensified restrictions and Islamophobia uh, since Xi Jinping took over the Communist Party in November 2012. Uh, for Hui, we noted a minor increase um, in, in, in religious persecution, manifesting in things like tighter controls on, on children's religious education or restrictions imposed on the posting of halal signs. Uh, for Uyghurs, as we've heard, the intensification was more notable. And what we saw were controls on religion deepening and expanding within the region. So for example, you know, along the lines of what Ryan mentioned, previously informal or local restrictions in Xinjiang on issues like religious dress have been codified, either at the regional or in some cases even the national level. Uh, limitations on children's ability to participate in religious activities have become more absolute. And we saw new campaigns launched by authorities to closely monitor cell phone usage and force businesses to sell alcohol. Um, now fourth, we found that restrictions on religious practice um, and their intrusive implementation have in many cases been linked to the growing number of violent clashes or even premeditated attacks by some Uyghurs against police pro-Beijing religious leaders and civilians. So you have a situation where we have found that incidents, for example, of security forces opening fire on Uyghur civilians um, becoming more common in, in several cases triggered by some effort to affirm religious identity or, or practice travel to a mosque in a different village, wear a headscarf, and of course once you have live fire introduced, that sparks a further public backlash. But we also found, and, and this is the fifth point, um, is that despite these tightening restrictions, Uyghurs were have been continuing uh, to seek out ways of affirming and practicing their faith peacefully. So many have chosen to secretly circumvent official controls, access unapproved religious publications, privately practice their faith or teach their children portions of the Quran, or refuse to participate in official celebrations. Others had acted more defiantly, growing beards or donning headscarves even where they were forbidden, or confronting police when they would try to enforce some of these intrusive regulations. Unfortunately, since we concluded our research, the situation in Xinjiang has gone from bad to worse. And I think it really renders the plight of Uyghurs you know, ever more urgent. Um, now, this is especially evident and disconcerting in terms of the intensified electronic surveillance being deployed and this emergence of a network of extra-legal political education centers apparently holding hundreds of thousands of people, which I think have, has really also dampened some of these spaces where uh, Uyghurs were trying to still affirm their faith uh, peacefully, uh, and it just, it just really has been targeting and closing those loopholes. Um, but, but one of the things I want to talk about is that although the conditions in, in, in Xinjiang are unique and particularly distressing, um, it's worth considering how what's happening there is not happening in isolation. Uh, so first, the deterioration in Xinjiang is part of a broader trend of increasing religious controls in China that affects a wide spectrum of faiths. 
uh, including those that in the past have typically faced lower levels of persecution, whether it's Chinese Buddhists or state-sanctioned Christian churches. And the sinicization phenomenon in particular has not only been targeted at ethnic minorities, but also at religious groups um, like, like Christians, and it's been very explicit in that regard. And some of the ways this is manifested in Xinjiang were evident across other groups as well. So what we found across, almost across the board were things like creating a more restrictive legal environment, expanding targets of repression, increasing state intrusion in daily religious life, including regarding children's education, and deploying technological innovations against religious targets. The other thing to keep in mind is that some of the specific personnel and tactics that are central to what's happening now in Xinjiang did not emerge out of nowhere. They were previously evident, tested, and refined in other contexts. So one example that's gotten some attention are the experiences of party secretary Chen Chuangguo in Tibet. And indeed, he was the CCP head in Tibet during the period of coverage of our report, where we also found increased restrictions on uh, religious practice for Tibetans. But we also saw, again, some of the very specific dynamics and tactics being deployed in Xinjiang evident in Tibet, including more intrusive controls into the personal religious practice of Tibetans, electronic surveillance in monasteries, and expansion of so-called patriotic education campaigns beyond monastics to lay, Tibet lay Tibetan Buddhists not in the form of camps, but in the form of other types of study sessions. Um, but another important pre precursor uh, that has gotten less attention is actually the use of almost identical extra-legal re-education centers in the CCP's campaign to eliminate Falun Gong. Those facilities have been evident throughout China. They date back as early as 2000, so there have been almost 20 years of refining this tactic. They were initially reported in the Washington Post in 2001, and that there have been subsequent accounts by Falun Gong refugees, human rights lawyers, and Amnesty International. Now, thousands of centers of this type are believed to exist throughout China, and at least tens of thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners have been held there at some point over the last 19 years. I actually happen to be someone who'd followed their emergence and interviewed former detainees, and, and the resemblance of the situation in Xinjiang is chilling. Um, from their ad hoc establishment in government buildings like schools or warehouses, the indefinite detention, and that's something Ryan, I think, didn't talk about because so far we've mostly heard situations of Uyghurs being taken to these camps. There have been relatively few cases, I think, that we've heard of people leaving. There was one account in foreign policy of a, a Uyghur who was lucky enough to be an American student, and, and somehow somebody pulled some strings and got him out of the camp. Um, but, but really, we don't know. And from the Falun Gong experience, people can be held there for weeks, months, years, like literally like two, three, four years, indefinite attention, no, no trial, no anything. Um, uh, the, the routines that people like this fellow who has written up in foreign policy about the daily routine there is very similar, watching propaganda videos, uh, shouting slogans. And then this issue of the official language. Um, if you see things right, uh, you know, citing quotas, uh, citing sex successful reform rates, and actually Ryan had another chilling one, which is the use of the word transformation, mm. because that was widely used in, in the Falun Gong case, and, and I'll get to that in a moment, but the CECC wrote about it in 2008. It goes very quickly from a psychological pressure to physical torture. Um, now, actually, so, so what I was going to say is in the Falun Gong case, the focus has been on forcing Falun Gong practitioners to renounce their belief in a process referred to as transformation. 
Um, those who are agree are more likely to be released, and it's not clear that that's necessarily happening yet in the Uyghur case. Those who refuse typically face fam uh, transfer to longer-term in uh, incarceration, either in, in the former labor camp system or, or to the prison system. And so when I hear discussion of successful reform rates uh, in Xinjiang, uh, it indicates that there is some similar dynamic at play. Um, the demands may be a little different. They may be a bit more nationalistic in terms of affirming language to the Communist Party, recognizing party rule, and not simply be about religious complicity. But I think there's a real question of whether, um, you know, again, what, what the intentions, what they're trying to, to, to accomplish, and if people who agree get released, if people who disagree get sent somewhere else. Um, so what do these dynamics pretend for the future? Um, unfortunately, I think the likelihood is that the situation is going to get worse before it gets better, uh, and in very disconcerting ways. Um, so first of all, if what's happening in Xinjiang regarding this massive extra-legal detention uh, of tens of thousands of people uh, follows, continues to follow parts of the Falun Gong playbook, we're likely to see increasing accounts of torture and deaths in custody at these facilities, especially among Uyghurs who may refuse to cooperate with the political indoctrination efforts. So for example, in 2014, uh, human rights lawyer Tang Biao, he wrote an account of these kinds of facilities in other parts of China uh, that are often referred to by the euphemism legal education center. In some cases, they've been used to detain petitioners as, as well as Falun Gong practitioners. It says in 2014, he cited evidence of at least 449 centers in existence at that time. And he notes, quote, torture occurs far more frequently and cruelly in detention centers than in jails. And labor camps were still worse but the so-called legal education centers are the worst of all. The number of innocent citizens tortured to death in these centers across China is in four figures. So again, we're starting with the level of uh, detentions uh, in Xinjiang, but again, any forms of resistance, any particular individuals, some of these local officials who may uh, have, have more extreme uh, goals and intentions, I, I think unfortunately we're likely to see more accounts of, of, of not just these kinds of routine uh, uh, you know, for you know, uh, propaganda routine, uh, routines and rituals, um, or people. There have already been deaths in custody at these centers, but it's usually people who have. Uh, it was you know somehow their health deteriorated because of lack of medication. Um, but but we're likely to see you know accounts emerging of people tortured to death, which happens in Xinjiang and in other contexts. Um, uh, second uh, is in, in the context of the scope the study we did. Um, it was beyond our scope to do a thorough and independent, a thorough independent investigation of allegations that uh, prisoners of conscience in China have been used as a source for China's booming organ transplant industry. Uh, but we did look into it, and we reviewed documents. And we talked to another people, a number of people who, in some cases, surprisingly, because we weren't expecting when we started talking to them, um, had, had some really you know, firsthand uh, information of, about the phenomenon. And so we did find evidence suggesting that religious prisoners have been killed extrajudicially on a large scale to provide organs for China's transplant industry, um, particularly in terms of the victimization of Falun Gong practitioners, and that practice may be continuing. Uh, but even in the report in 2016, you know, that we finished in 2016, we wrote that in the context of already then large-scale disappearances of young Uyghur men, which has only intensified, um, and accounts of routine blood testing of Uyghur political prisoners, which came up in at least one interview we did with a former Uyghur prisoner, um, we noted that this population now risks becoming uh, victims of involuntary organ harvesting. Um, now, when you're looking at this issue, you kind of got to look at some of the different signs and, uh, and circumstantial evidence. But unfortunately, I think since we completed the, the report, um, the new information that has emerged in Xinjiang only makes this risk 
I think potentially even more dangerous um, because you're hearing about large-scale medical testing of Uyghurs, including ones who may not be in detention, uh, this massive extra-legal uh, detention. Um, and now, you know, you have statements about a possible desire to incorporate organ transplant efforts into the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and with regards to organ transplants, ethnic um, closeness can help the quality of the transplant. So, you know, if you're having more Central Asian officials coming for transplants, uh, as, as opposed to just Koreans and, and, and Japanese or Chinese, uh, then, then Uyghurs are, are potentially um, better population to draw from. Um, so, so again, I think these, these dynamics indicate that uh, Uyghur detainees, you know, could be at greater risk now and in the future uh, of becoming victims of this, which could be, you know, it could be a result of an intentionality, but it can also be very opportunistic financially. So again, in terms of the local differentiation, these risks are there, and they might not necessarily be because there's an official final solution to eradicate all Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. But again, the circumstances are there that could lead to a large number of, of Uyghur deaths. Um, and then third, you know, as repression intensifies and affects an ever-growing number of Uyghurs, the, risk, the CCP risks undermining its own objectives of suppressing dissent, even violence. And so you could see that outbreaks of spontaneous violence as well as more premeditated attacks against Chinese targets could intensify, especially if some of the fear surrounding the camps begins to subside. Now, I usually like to end my remarks on an optimistic note, but really when I was preparing these, these remarks, I mean, the current situation and the potential future trajectory are, are so serious and disconcerting that I really found it hard to do. So I would just end noting that I think a strong international response is critically important at this moment. Um, continuing business as usual with the Chinese government officials or even companies from Xinjiang is untenable. And I think we need to figure out how to leverage those relationships um, because otherwise we're going to just see more families uh, inevitably be torn apart and, and lives ruined, including, again, I think we're talking about potential fatalities. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Louisa. Yeah, so we've heard a litany of horrors here, and I'm going to disagree a little bit with some of the other speakers about the objectives. I think we have to look hard at what the objectives are, and I'd also note we do have um, Uyghurs in the audience. Thank you for coming. This is an impossible subject to talk about for even an hour and a half, and this is your daily lives. Um, our sympathies and, and concern are clearly shown by, thank you, Hudson, for holding such an event. Um, let's take another lens at these restrictions, um, you know, uh, objectives of changing minds, but backed by force. What does it involve? The entire life cycle. Birth, restrictions on the names. You cannot use a name that is too religious or too extremist. Childhood, restrictions on being able to become truly fluent in your own language. Uh, and uh, Family members as, as teachers are being slowly cut out. Marriage, uh, you know, slowly... Uh, restrictions on marriage are coming in. If you're an official, you may not have an Islamic marriage ceremony. Uh, a number of them have been, of officials have been dismissed from their jobs because they held a traditional ceremony at home. Um, and the idea is that home wedding vows could give rise to unsanctioned religious leaders promoting deviant views that contradict ethnic unity and the sovereignty of the country. So simply practicing your own rituals of family reproduction and the continuation of an ethno-religious group is itself contradictory to state policy. And then finally, death. Um, we've just been hearing about natural death, not in the camps. Uh, the rolling out, which will no doubt go become systematic very soon, of um, a new system of burial called, um, well, 
Aquarial Management Centers, which have not um, operated in Xinjiang. These are Chinese-style uh, offices all over China that you know manage <coughs> uh, cremation and so on. And now this will erase the expression of one's ethno-religious identity through burial ritual. And I hope as an anthropologist you'll help us understand the significance of the life cycle restrictions focused in on whether or not pe a people can continue as a people. Uh, outside the camps, I will note just a few other things that um, show the intensification of the repression. Uh, just recently, the new term has come up about re rooting out two-faced officials. So there's now a reward. Uh, if you're a poor Uyghur or you're a Han there, you can have the incentive anywhere from $30,000 to over $170,000 if you turn in an official who uh, uh, the, quote, harbor extremist views or, quote, interfere with the judiciary, local administration, or education, or attempt to, quote, obstruct implementation of the Constitution. So we're setting up a system of informers with reportedly high payouts. I haven't seen any reporting whether anyone has admitted to getting such a payment, but the incentive there is a cash payment to turn in officials who are uh, insufficiently zealous in implementing policy, and inc that includes if you deliberately assist criminals in evading punishment. So if you're too lenient as an official in implementing these policies, um, you too will be called a two-faced official and go straight to the camps. Um, we know revolutions eat their own, but here we have the totalitarian Leninist and Maoist-style denunciation system being introduced quite broadly with cash. This campaign, by the way, is supposed to go back five years, digging up dirt on others. <clears throat> so we have this litany of torture, and I'd like to particularly point to some of these features which are well-known precursors of the final solution that does go to the physical murder. Dehumanizing rhetoric, of course, Ryan has already mentioned. Forcing civilians to participate in dehumanizing the enemy. These civilian work teams that are coming from elsewhere in China and living in homes, as well as the mobilization of entire work units, anyone who's in a state-associated work unit, uh, being forced to carry out these policies. This is dehumanizing to the enforcers. And we know that desensitizing people in positions of responsibility and who are part of communities where they have to save their skins by doing inhuman things, getting used to this language, speaking out not only in the loyalty oaths, but also denouncing the enemy who is your own neighbor, your former teacher, uh, everyone in your community. This desensitizes you to the language and the brutal actions. And then finally, I think in order to understand where do we think this is going, um, you have to listen to some of the victims. So one of the very few people uh, with whom uh, an outsider has spoken after leaving the camps is a Kazakh man who was uh, able to go back to Kazakhstan. And uh, he said, they taught us not to be Muslims. So the objective of this camp, in his view, is to erase their Muslim identity, destruction of Uyghur Muslims as a people. And so you know, these are strong indications of at least the beginnings or the per precursors of a policy whose effect and, in fact, unstated intent is to destroy the Uyghurs as a people. 
And I'll go back into a couple of policy um, areas that haven't been mentioned yet, and particularly the religious uh, affairs. New regulations on religious affairs came into effect February 1st of this year, passed last June. Um, this is where the sinicization of religion came up quite strongly. What is that definition? Well, it, uh, the policy prohibits the use of religion to, quote, undermine ethnic unity or to divide the nation. Now, who's dividing the nation? We know it's mostly the splittists, which is mostly the Tibetans and the Uyghurs. Uh, there's a lot of language about extremism and terrorism, and that really is mostly the Uyghurs, not so much the Tibetans. So the definition of separatism, as we have seen, is equal to, tantamount to, simply expressing your ethnic identity, which has become harder and harder over the last 10 years, and found now backed up by this weapon of uh, unaccountable, no due process, being swept in in large numbers to the concentration camps um, is going to be likely quite successful in enabling uh, the labeling of all Uyghurs as enemies of national security and national unity. Um, now, at the, at the policy level, we know that religious affairs are now, have just as of March, at the MPC brought on to directly under the day-to-day -day management as well as policy oversight of the United Front Work Department of the party. So the previously existing uh, State Administration of Religious Affairs, or SARA, has been abolished, technically. And we have the United, Work Front, uh, United Front Work Department fully in charge. Um, of course, this is the department that everyone knows Xi Jinping uh, began quoting Mao on. This is the magic weapon for the victory of the party's cause. And I think it's useful to go back even a little bit further to the April 2016 National Work Conference on Religion. This was uh, the most high-profile such conference since 2001, so in 15 years, um, you haven't had a part, the party secretary attending. However, in 2016, so just almost exactly two years ago, Xi Jinping himself attended. Six out of the seven members of the Politburo Standing Committee attended. And I'm just going to give you some of Xi Jinping's words. Um, it's very repetitive, as always. Uh, the party will actively guide religions to adapt to socialist society. The basic principle of the party's work is that our party adheres to the Marxist view of religion. He said, in imp implementation, the starting point and the ending point is to maximize the unity of the masses. And in guiding religious believers, the party will emphasize safeguarding the unity of the motherland, safeguarding the great unity of the Chinese nation, and obeying and serving the highest interests of the countries, including promoting Chinese culture. Now, these are all clues that the suppression of uh, illegal religion means the suppression of all religion. And again, with strong emphasis on illegal extremism, we're talking, have a laser pointer straight at Uyghur identity because, in fact, Uyghur practice of Islam is in many cases equated, and certainly by local officials' interpretation, uh, it's all the same thing. Uh, Xi Jinping further said about uh, this, what this guidance will mean, effective, powerful, and proactive. Well, it's been carried out. Uh, the, I'll just quote one more official. Um, so Yu Zhengsheng uh, had been in the party uh, overseeing the United Front Work Department small group on Xinjiang and Tibet. 
uh, all of many of his public remarks over the last six years have strongly emphasized cynicizing religion. Uh, I would like to also now go turn to um, Ryan's points about the motivations. You know, what is the end point that we're aiming toward? He mentioned changing people's minds, a disciplinary function of the camps, um, disrupting those who might resist, uh, and potentially uh, mass extermination. Um, you know, those are all reasons of state. You know, there's, there's something that needs to be accomplished here, this, the security and the stability. Um, I'd like to mention four other dynamics uh, that can also contribute to the escalation. You know, here's where we're starting, or might have started um, at the beginning of these camps. I think there are institutional and political dynamics that almost inevitably point to things getting much, much worse. Uh, one is power and money, simply institutional self-interest, the bureaucratic resource maximizing behavior of all state actors, and um, you know, with the increase in security spending, Adrian Zones has done some amazing um, documentation on this. One figure is security expenditure in Xinjiang has increased tenfold in the last 10 years. And then um, also just simply profit maximizing. All the companies that are thrilled to be able to go to Xinjiang and carry out all the artificial intelligence and electronic surveillance experimentation to help build China's great rejuvenation and rising in the world. Uh, that's all happening in Xinjiang. There are a lot of motives for getting um, ramping up a very strong state control. So that's not reasons of state, that's reasons of individual bureaucratic self-interest. I also want to point to a political dynamic of the cult of the individual. Uh, I mentioned it before, you know, forcing people to denounce others lest they be um, denounced. Um, this is clearly underway already. It has a self-perpetuating and dynamic that gets worse. Um, you know, the psychophancy and the loyalty display become more intense, not less. Thirdly, um, the question of the use of nationalism for domestic legitimacy. You know, we, we see this, of course, very strongly, anti-Japanese nationalism brought out uh, frequently. It has not been as strong a dynamic and certainly doesn't require mass incarceration to be able to be generated. So I think this is, at the moment, not as strong. And we've also noted that Xinjiang is a testing ground both for the um, artificial intelligence but also the intensification of some of the, on a much broader scale, um, some of the modalities of repression that Sarah has talked about. Um, but another, so, and, and then fifthly, I want to mention that clearly Xinjiang is the gateway to the Belt and Road in the, on the land base part, the road part, not the belt part. And uh, the policies in Xinjiang being critical to the success of this, you know, China's international presence and, in fact, intention to dominate through Made in, in China 2015, the high-tech sectors globally, uh, so regionally and global, regional and global um, geostrategic ambitions are tied up uh, to Xinjiang. And you know, does that require mass incarceration camps? Does that require the extermination or at least the ending of the identity of a resistant population? Uh, I'd like to see whether people have a view on that and, and ask for more research. So, if I may, um, just a minute on, you know, what, where does this leave this? I, I want to echo um, Sarah's uh, sense of urgency and concern about, uh, you know, this is not an academic topic. What does this tell us about the nature of the CCP regime? Willing to go to these lengths, um, 
what should be worldwide condemnation of brutal, brutal tactics, which remind us of a previous final solution, so far actually very, very quiet. So not a bad calculation, uh, cynical calculation on the part of the Chinese state. Uh, is it time for democratic governments uh, to recognize what's there and stand up purely on moral grounds? Secondly, what does this tell us about the nature of the state, you know, of the Chinese state, um, irregardless of international norms, um, seemingly emboldened? And I think on many, many fronts, uh, we can see this, but I think when we look at the situation of the Uyghurs, it truly is one of the most prominent canaries in the coal mine, as we understand the nature of this state and whether we should be doing business as usual. There are parts of our U.S. government, for example, who are zeroed in on this, and I really want to commend the U.S.-China Commission, um, looking closely at the economic uh, dominance Drive, its report on techno-nationalism is just tremendous, upcoming report on biotechnology. I want to commend USERF uh, on you know, strongly pushing for uh, enforcement of our International Religious Freedom Act, which involves visa denials and freezing up assets of officials involved in this human rights suppression, and of course, the Magnitsky Act. I would say, just finally, that much of this is not about uh, you know, the, our government speaking out because of the horror that we should be seeing in front of our eyes and that our Uyghur friends are living with every day, and especially our, our own Radio Free Asia reporters who have 30-plus relatives disappeared into these camps. Um, but this kind of behavior uh, on the part of a, a major power should portend a kind of disregard for human, uh, of norms of human rights and, of course, rule of law, um, and it's coming for us. We have... I will just give one example of the lack of regard for human safety in drug production. You know, we're highly dependent on Chinese pharmaceutical factories. Unfortunately, they're sending us a lot of the opioids that are killing Americans. But we're also dependent on Chinese factories for the parts. I mean, one report says all antibiotic drugs are produced in China. All right, so, you know, can we do more? Do we have to simply say we must speak out? And as Rabbi Stephen Weiss said in the 30s, you know, we must speak out against what's happening in Germany. If that is unavailing, at least we shall have spoken. I think that's where we stand right now, and I'd like to urge all of us to think more uh, proactively and say, you know, simply to preserve uh, our own rule of law, it's time for much stronger action. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sarah and Ryan and Jim, were there... Sarah had raised um, the question of what an appropriate national response to this should look like, uh, as well as an international response. Do you have any additional thoughts to add to uh, what Louisa had discussed? Um, well, first, I think certainly this question of uh, holding offic individual officials to account, um, whether it's at the top in questions of you know Chen Chuanguo or finding research to figure out who are some of the officials who might be responsible for these abuses. One of the things that came up in our, re you know, especially in the context of the kind of impunity um, and these political uh, advancement and promotional incentives within the CCP system, uh, it's such an important individualized tool uh, to counter those dynamics and to affect the cost-benefit analysis of local officials. And uh, in our research, not so much in Xinjiang, but in other contexts, you definitely do see this differentiation where local officials will 
be more lenient, um, including against populations like Falun Gong or uh, underground churches that would normally be subject to repression because of outreach by that community to educate the, po the, the, the police or because of concerns and even you know conversations related to examples of either other high-ranking officials uh, that in China that got caught up in the anti-corruption campaign um, or, or, or potentially these kinds of sanctions. Um, and then I think another thing, though, uh, is this question of potential complicity. Uh, and I think that's one of the things where, at the very least, that's where we have to think about due diligence, maybe more in terms of the, the, the companies. Um, but just to give a few examples in terms of uh, some of the surveillance technologies used in China, and I don't necessarily if one of if this company, for example, uh, is, is, um, you know, is operating in Xinjiang, but it's one of mineral, many Chinese uh, a government, uh, Chinese uh, artificial intelligence companies is SenseTime. And besides Alibaba, one of their main investors is Qualcomm. Uh, you also have a situation now where under the last year's cybersecurity law, uh, um, there's data localization requirements. Uh, so at the very least, Apple uh, has moved its data uh, for, for Apple and iCloud users uh, to uh, servers uh, in China, partnering actually with a Chinese government-owned company. Again, I don't know how much that affects people in Xinjiang, but these are just things I think to look into to the extent that they might. Um, and then uh, Evernote uh, actually also transferred uh, its data in partnership with Tencent. Uh, and we know that Tencent is, uh, does have a record, especially with regard to WeChat communications, uh, of handing over uh, information to the authorities. Um, so I, I think those are some of the things that are worth thinking about uh, in terms of you know, both for members of the tech community, what are some of the best practices for us not to be complicit, but possibly in terms of US government regulations, reporting, transparency requirements, or other things, to think about how do we make sure that we're not accidentally a complicit in some of these dynamics of escalation that Louisa was talking about. Ryan, anything to? Um, I, I, I think that this kind of, um, Bureaucratized, systematic targeting along ethnic lines is um, uh, extra legal, including extra legal detention on such a large scale, is something that the international community generally doesn't stand for. Um, and uh, that's a standard I personally, uh, I personally embrace. And so I, I would like to see some sort of multilateral Action. China is not a signatory to some of the legal um, covenants that would hold some of its officials who are engaged in this accountable. But that doesn't mean that uh, we can't have some kind of multilateral organization, um, whether it uh, be the UN or the EU, within which some members call for some kind of fact-finding mission or something like that, um, which at, at the minimum will um, engage the Chinese state in discussion about what's going on and, and raise for Chinese officials the notion that this is a universally condemned approach to the problems that they're, that they're concerned with. Jim, anything to add? I'm struck by some of the language that Louisa just used, um, the idea of you know, business as usual. Uh, and I'm struck because I'm very guilty myself of pretty much engaging in business as usual, even you know, being banned sometimes from China, but other times I'm not. And uh, I was recently invited 
by a, uh, a think tank or a Chinese government uh, group, research group, to go on a trip to Xinjiang. Um, in the end, they couldn't pull it together because I think they themselves in Beijing didn't realize this is when the work teams were going out house to house last winter in Xinjiang. They didn't realize what was going on themselves, which is an interesting fact. But I, my initial reaction was, well, okay, go along, see what they have to say. I expected a Potemkin kind of visit, but even that, I was interested to see what they were trying to sell me, you know, sell it, sell to me. Um, and of course, academics um, in general are who, who work on China and in China, we're, we're pro-engagement on the balance, right? Even when um, we know there are problems and we are not afraid to bring them up, um, we generally think, you know, there has to be that. And I'm wondering if, but I'm, I'm now questioning, you know, my own sense in this and that are we at a point where, um, you know, even the academic community and those who deal with, you know, good people um, not engaged in locking people up in Xinjiang, nonetheless have to make a point um, and, and not just sort of go along with that. So I'm going to start thinking about that myself. I mean, I just thought of a phrase. Um, you know, after the events of June in 1989, um, you know, sort of the Tiananmen, obviously everyone was shocked worldwide. There were worldwide reactions, at least for a while. There was an end to business as usual. Um, and I think we're seeing here you know, the problem, it's, it's, it's different. It's not in Beijing. It involves a minority who, frankly, we're kind of normalized to the idea that, well, China always oppresses the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, right? So a little bit more, you know, what are you going to do? We, we've, right? So, um, but this is a slow motion Tiananmen, right, um, in some ways. And the problem is our outrage isn't immediately stoked the way it was by uh, the, that night of, of video. But... Um, I think we need to start thinking about it that way. Thank you. Uh, I want to be mindful of everybody's time, but I think we have a good 15 minutes for Q&A. Um, when I call on you, if you can identify yourself and keep your questions as short as possible, you're in the first row here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Eric, I'd like to thank you for organizing this uh, panel discussion. Um, I believe this is the first time that um, experts come together and talk about the uh, the events taking place in the Uyghur's homeland. Um, I, I'd like to point out a couple things before I ask a couple of questions. One, um, I think that uh, on a positive note, uh, we've been talking about horrifying uh, things uh, during the panel discussion. I think the Chinese government had done two things uh, to the benefit of the Uyghur political movement. One, uh, as Jim pointed out, uh, by this mass detention and this facilities that they set up, they made it, uh, they suggested to the world that it's not about terrorism. And also, uh, and also made the Uyghur political activists to, to advance the cause by linking to something happened during the uh, Second World War, the concentration camps. So this made it uh, in a, a little bit more sellable, uh, uh, take it to the direction that, that is making it easy for the Uyghurs to uh, advocate uh, the Uyghur rights. And then the second thing the Chinese government uh, may have not thought about is to uh, give Uyghurs a mobilizing force. Uh, as uh, Ryan pointed out, it's very hard to find any Uyghur family has not been affected by this mass detention. So uh, this has been evident. Uh, in March 15, there was a large uh, 
women-led protests all around the world, more than a dozen countries. Just last week in Brussels, uh, based on Belgian police estimate, 2,600 uh, Uyghurs from uh, 10, 15 countries came to Brussels to protest. So this, in a positive note, this has uh, actually uh, helping the movement to advocate the Uyghur rights. And two questions related to this. Um, um, how likely that the Chinese will success uh, in this effort? Uh, Jim pointed out their motivation, and the other panelists talked about the specific acts being committed or carried out. And then uh, two, uh, based on the concerns uh, expressed by Ryan and Sarah, um, uh, without getting into legal definition, uh, do you see this as a form of, form of uh, genocide taking place? Sarah, would you like uh, to sure. take so, it? So, I mean, I think on the question of success, it depends how you define success. Because, I mean, again, one thing came up again and again in our research was really the Communist Party, despite, in some cases, you know, the horrors of physical torture, a futility of changing ch people's actual beliefs. Uh, and so, you know, again, with regards to this broader kind of study session culture, uh, you know, a Tibetan monk talking about how they'd have the patriotic session, you know, education sessions in their monastery, but in some cases the monks just wouldn't go. And actually the officials were kind of afraid to provoke a bigger outburst, so they would let them go. Um, Christians, you know, sitting with like other kinds of reading materials in the sessions. Um, uh, you know, examples of, and you see this actually in the Chinese government language, of Falun Gong practitioners who had supposedly been transformed and then come out and start practicing and are considered recidivists, um, and, and again, various quotas and things like that. So I, I think that's, I think in terms of this question of how much are they really going to sincerely change, you know, the beliefs, the deeply held beliefs and identity of the Uyghurs in these camps, I, I you know, I think, you know, I think that's, that's it's probably unlikely. I, I think the question is whether they succeed in suppressing, you know, out, out external forms and this question of the next generation, because that also came up, um, again, in terms of we were looking at what are some of the religious management tactics overall, and this idea of long-term asphyxiation of religious identity among children, again, comes up again and again across different faiths, and so I think that's a population that's much more vulnerable, especially if you're talking linguistically. Um, it's a very real manifestation of, of, uh, of the identity. So I think from that perspective, they could potentially succeed. I mean, on the question of genocide, I, I mean, I don't think it's gone to that point yet. I think the question is whether you have signs that they could get to that point. And then I think other questions of, you know, again, how you define, you know, if you start, even if you ha start having large-scale fatalities, uh, which hopefully will not happen, you know, whether that's intentional, again, as a form of campaign of eradication, uh, or is the result of these other opportunistic um, actors and activities and these broader oppressive conditions. Um, I think a different question perhaps would be the question of crimes against humanity. Um, and I think you know, that potentially might be something from an international legal advocacy perspective or in terms of the you know, UN, you know, independent investigation. I think that would be a question because if you look at the definitions, then there might be a stronger argument in terms of current conditions for something like that. Yeah, and I just say, yeah. I agree that genocide is not, does not fit any, uh, any widely accepted definition of genocide at the, at the moment. It does, I think, fit um, some um, uh, crimes against 
humanity, which have certain standards for systematization in the um, in the in the application. I think it pretty clearly fits those. But again, that that, that definition is is not of much um, value considering China is outside of the system that developed that um, uh, that category. But as to success, um, I don't want to be. Uh, uh, too sanguine on people's um, ability and desire to resist when their life is on the line, ideological change. Conversion by the sword does work. You know, the number of um, even even it just it just works on the long the long term scale, and it looks like the state in China uh, is is willing to take a long term approach. You know, there are many areas in the world where people now. Believed in different religions than than their forefathers did, due to a conquest, um, including atheists in the former Soviet Union, for example. So so it does work, but it only it only works on the long term. It doesn't work within a single uh, within a single generation. Does it matter? Does it stop resistance? You know, uh, that's that's another another question. I mean. Um, People can many generations later, after losing their language and their culture, still be regarded as a racial other and 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 resist the oppression that comes with that. Yeah. Uh, in the fourth row back, please. Uh, I just would like to point out that people tend to forget that, from the epistemologic standpoint and philosophical. Communist regime by excellence always combat religion. Marx said the religion is the people's opium. So it's by definition they will, they will always be doing so. But the interesting thing here is China is open to, to the market, economical, uh, 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 capitalistic market. So uh, before coming to this question, I just wanted to point out the experience of a Christian father who came to witness the cultural revolution in China, Père Jean Cardinal, he showed that there is nothing that looks like somebody who is created and somebody who is educated or transformed through education, through religion. So there is no success for this Chinese revolution or communist until now. <coughs> Nobody have, uh, nobody have seen a success of transforming man. So my question is, is there is any possibility to think about how to strengthen the market to transform the communist regime from the inside? Louisa, do you have an answer for that? No. It's a tough question, and arguably our entire policy since 1991 and even prior to that has been based on the assumption that there could be that kind of engagement and yet it hasn't worked. And there's growing appreciation both here in the US and in China itself that it will not work. Um, ma'am, in the third row here. Um, so I'd like to address um, China's reach outside of the Uyghur homeland to Uyghurs that are living um, abroad. Uh, Ryan some talked about the disconnect between the generations in the homeland, uh, between the older generation and the youth who are indoctrinated in schools. 
and I think Louisa Grieve talked about, um, you know, the journalists and other members in uh, the U.S. and outside of their homeland who are being affected. I just wanted to get your view on if the situation escalates, if it gets much worse, how do you see um, the Uyghur community outside of their homeland disconnecting or being suppressed in, uh, or unable to express or advocate uh, for, you know, their people in the homeland? I, I, I think this is an extremely important point. Thank you, Arjunur. Uh As we know, when I'm talking about an expansionist form of authoritarian rule, what we're talking about is a Chinese state, party state, that's willing to extend its repressive policies throughout the world, wherever it can. Um, in fact, the long arm of Chinese repression is commonly used in this town. So this is extremely brutal against Uyghurs. As we know, um, literally every time you meet a Uyghur, you can ask, do you have relatives um, who are in these uh, indefinite detention camps? And the answer is always yes. Um, so you know, clearly what I'm saying is this is a warning sign, um, not only for you know, a chance for, is it a crisis point for Uyghurs around the world who have managed to get a job or education or immigrate somewhere else? Obviously, yes. You already talked about their activism. But it's also a question of self-defense for the democratic countries. And how can we allow a foreign authoritarian country to come in and threaten our own citizens, our own residents, in violation, of course, of our promises, of our constitution? Um, this is a matter of self-defense and not sympathy for an obscure people. Um, this is why it's so urgent that um, our own government agencies, not our State Department, but our own uh, domestic uh, governance institutions uh, put a stop to it. So here in the second row, the white shirt here. Thank you. I, I understand that the uh, Chinese government has found all sorts of ways to stop neighboring countries from um, playing a part in this, mainly uh, by um, uh, bribing the top leaders and keeping ordinary people ignorant of what's happening. In addition to which, we also know that there's a larger Muslim world of, what is it, one and a half billion people? How come they keep quiet all the time? Is it not, I mean, after all, there are all kinds of different voices one hears from them. And uh, presumably, if they were to know about all of this, uh, they would feel uh, that this attacks them personally in a way it doesn't really attack us except in the form that Louisa just mentioned. Um, if Christians were to be oppressed in this way, I hope we would hear, although when they were oppressed in the Middle East and are still being oppressed in the Middle East, one doesn't hear all that much about it here. But nevertheless, there is a very large external constituency that is deep, should be deeply informed and deeply involved in this. Are there ways in which that a, that a huge community can be informed of what's going on? Uh, so, so first of all, actually, there's been a decent amount of reporting on Al Jazeera. At least I've seen, seen the English. I don't, I don't speak Arabic, so I'm assuming it's also happening in Arabic. So I think that is one way uh, that people are hearing about it. Uh, this bifurcated treatment of different Muslim groups in China plays very well for the Chinese government's propaganda. So when they invite officials, especially from the governments uh, of Middle Eastern countries, uh, they, they bring them to Ningxia, uh, where the Hui Muslims are. There's this actual whole, like, 
touristy, Muslim, um, uh, not really amusement park, but display uh, that has been created and direct flights um, from, from those parts of China to parts of the Middle East. So the Chinese government really uh, plays that up uh, in terms of it actually enabling a large amount of, of, of religious freedom for the Hui while distracting from the Uyghur situation. Uh, to some extent, I mean, I think, but not not in the same degrees. I mean, it's more indirect in terms of, uh, again, this kind of escalating Islamophobia, restrictions on children, but not again. They overall face a relatively low level of repression. It's not anything, and it's especially in terms of, I, mean, I think, what you would think when outraged Muslims, um, you know, are these restrictions on like key tenets of, uh, of of Islam. I mean, if the United States banned Muslims from fasting during Ramadan. There would be enormous outrage. I mean, let alone you know maybe other parts of the world. So, um, so I mean I don't know that much. I mean what you see happening. So I think you do see some action in civil society. Uh, there was a really interesting case, and one of the ways this extra legal repression also works is in uh, governments being pressured to return Uyghur refugees. And so there was actually a very um, interesting and strong statement by the Malaysian Bar Association when a case like that came up in Malaysia, how based on Malaysian law itself that these, these Uyghurs should not be deported back to China, uh, not even just talking about, say, international commitments and, and, and rules and things like that. Um, so I, I think there's a real question, um, at least in terms of how do, maybe for the Uyghur movement, how do you engage with public, the Muslim public? Because the, a lot of the countries, unfortunately, and the leaders, a lot of these are not, especially in the Gulf, they're not democratic countries. The Saudi Arabian government has cooperated with the Chinese government regarding how you approve visas for, for Uyghurs to go to the Hajj. Um, I mean, Indonesia would be a government to try to engage with, um, you know, diplomatically even, and if there are any, you know, collective international statements or things like that. Um, but I think the question would be to try to, to inform more of the public, uh, perhaps, in these countries. Uh, for them to, to at least know um, what's happening in China and potentially undermine also some of China's soft power. I mean, again, there's like, I think CCTV is also in Arabic. I mean, there's, there's various ways in which the Chinese government tries to improve and hone uh, its own image uh, for these populations that I'm not sure there's really necessarily a counter narrative out there right now. Yeah. Sir, here in the. <coughs> Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. The Hudson Institute is great for having topics that I know nothing about. Many of us know nothing about and would become educated. Thank you very much. Uh, two quick questions, right? One along the same line about the Islamic world. Are the Zegas Shiites, Sunni, I mean, do they relate at all in any of our normal divisions among Islam? Two, are they the group that's also spelled U-I-G-H? Because there have been articles in the newspaper, you know, about the knifings that have taken place in various marketplaces. Also, Uyghurs seem to figure uh, prominently in a lot of the reporting on Guantanamo Bay. One I remember set up a group of Uyghurs set up restaurants in Montevideo, Uruguay. But the real question is, if these are Muslim, if they do relate either Shia or Sunni, why is not the Hudson Institute? But you have so many programs on Islam is, and different say, reaching out more. And my real curious question is, has the Holocaust Museum around the corner from here, have they yet in any way associated with this particular project? And if not, have you tried to raise with them? Thank you again for this most educated lecture. Thank you, uh, Brian. Um, 
Well, uh, let me say quickly, since both of you talked about the Islamic world, that there's a tendency to overestimate the cohesion of a thing called the Islamic world. It is, I would say, about as relevant as the concept of Christendom. Um, you know, I, I do think we can expect people to be just as upset in a unified way as we would expect all of the places that are majority Christian to be upset about some persecution of a Christian group, which is not much. Um, and um, Muslims in many places have their own forms of oppression to deal with that are much more pressing, and there is a um, there is a, a, a very much a lack of information about this. People just people just don't know. When I talk to Muslims in other majority Muslim countries, the most likely um, result of a line of questioning about the Uyghurs is they never heard of them. Um, so, um, uh, in terms of religion, um, Uyghurs tend to be Sunni. The Sunni-Shia divide is not very meaningful. Um, among uh, among Uyghurs historically, there are some sh some sh Shia Uyghurs. Uh, they number in the hundreds um, out of ten out of ten million. Um, and uh, I think the Holocaust Museum would be a, a great uh, a great institution to get involved in this. And as far as I know, uh, there have been no uh, no efforts to, um, to to involve them. But that that's a that's a great idea. We have time, I'm sorry to say, for one final question. Um, this gentleman over here, and uh, yeah. I have Paul Wong from the Epoch Times. Uh, Sarah, question for Sarah, that you mentioned the large scale disappearance of Uyghur males in Xinjiang could be linked to the organ harvesting similar to what happened to Falun Gong. Have there been systematic research investigation into this issue? And what are the evidences that, if you can elaborate? So, so I would say there hasn't been systematic research. And I actually, in, in my remarks originally, was going to say that actually that's one of the things that really deserves some serious investigation. Because we were really only able to touch the tip of the iceberg. But again, like you know, you, you were interviewing this Uyghur refugee who had been in Turkey. Uh, and, and we're talking to him about a variety of different things. And then because of an experience I had where I interviewed many follow-along refugees before information related to organ transplant abuses came out, I never thought to ask them about whether they'd been blood tested in custody, and later discovered that a number of people I had interviewed and I had met with, including people who were Amnesty International cases, who were profiled by the UN, had indeed been blood tested in, in, in detention. So I asked him, so have you, you know, have, were, were there any blood tests? And then he proceeds to give a quite detailed account about how uh, he was held actually at a prison in Xinjiang through 2011 for like, like 14 years or something incredible like that. Um, and he was a political prisoner, and how they would periodically line up the Uyghur political prisoners and not the Chinese criminal detainees to take them for blood tests. Um, and again, that's just one small snippet, but it's one of those things where that's where there really needs to be an investigation because that, there could be lots of explanations for that potentially, HIV scan, you know, things like that. It's just that when you start to piece these bits of pieces together, if that were, I would have been very happy to hear from them say, no, we never had any blood tests. I would have been much because I think that would have reduced the concerns about the potential risk to the Uyghurs. And I think since then, there have been only more reports of, again, like DNA testing and other forms of broader medical examinations in the Uyghur community. Again, these could be some kind of genuine public health, you know, effort, but, um, but but there could also be a you know multiple different uses for it, uh, and but to, and and again I think it just uh, creates the conditions for exploitation because uh, I think even in this Falun Gong case it's not always clear whether how much this was from the top 
or how much you had hospitals and things like that. But we actually do know that in the late 1990s, there were already cases of Uyghur political prisoners being killed for their organs. There's a Uyghur surgeon, Enver Toti, who now lives in, in, in England, that one of my, you know, my colleagues I, I had spoken with and, and was actually forced, he has this very d distinct account of being forced to remove the organs of a political Uyghur political prisoner who was executed. So again, there's, there's some history to that. And I think it definitely warrants some more, more serious uh, investigation. That's a good point, and I'll just point out one resource that uh, I'm associated with, uh, ntransplantabuseinchina.org. Mendo, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you especially to each one of our speakers for coming out for this important discussion. This was not the first panel that we've had on uh, the situation in Xinjiang, nor will it be the last, but it was truly very clarifying for everybody, I think. So thank you all for being here. Thanks for being here.